Edie's Sustainability Uncovered podcast is hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to have Lloyds Bank involved as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to the ED podcast, broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank. And this is Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's summertime special, we check in with Booking.com, tracking the trends towards more sustainable summer holidays pre and post lockdowns. Our travellers really want to travel more sustainably. Almost three quarters are telling us that they want to see more sustainable choices provided to them. Then we ask the Science-Based Targets Initiative's Chief Impact Officer some of your most pressing questions about setting credible climate goals. So we're raising the bar and we're very conscious of that. And so we're having a little bit of pressure saying, aren't you pushing the bar too high? But on the other side, we know that this is what is required. Also in this episode, we'll hear from one of the UK's biggest shopping centre operators, Westfield, getting their advice on creating lasting positive community impacts beyond this summer's biggest events. Continuous improvement in sustainability is absolutely key. Just putting um, an action plan together and delivering it is is just not enough. Uh, Consumers demand more, retailers demand more, uh, brand partners demand more. Plus, we'll be making sense of all the green policy turbulence in the UK at the moment, getting you up to speed on this month's sustainability success stories and, of course, serving up a fresh edition of our quiz. That's all to come in this new episode of Sustainability Uncovered. Yes, hello and welcome along to this August edition of Sustainability Uncovered. I'm not entirely sure where this year is going, seeing as we're usually freezing cold in this podcast studio. Um, Joining me, Edie's um, deputy editor on this podcast today, um, it's just me and Matt in the studio, Matt Mace, content editor. How are you doing? Yeah, really well, thank you. Had a bit of time off, sun, sea and... Uh, dog walks were on the um, were on the agenda for me um, at the weekend, so feeling very refreshed. Well, I'm glad for you because I was covering for you while I was <laughs> off. So my report for the week was something like, "Oh my goodness, the government's been so daft." While well, you've been off, um, but I get to enjoy maybe some rain, sea, and sand this weekend when I'll be I'll be off. So by the time you're listening, I'll be in a caravan getting rained on, probably a seagull on the roof. Classic British summer. Classic British summer. Um, so we've got a lot to to bring you in this episode, even if it is just us. Luke is freshly back off of holiday and too jet lagged, we understand, to spare an hour on this podcast. Um, so before we get stuck into this episode, which is I've tried to keep it loosely summer themed, mm. um, I want to start off on the right foot. If Luke were here, I think he'd want us to share our sustainability stories of the month like we usually do. Um, But to keep it lighthearted, I thought we could do a success story of the month each. Um, And I will start with Luke, who's not here, who will be speaking in the guise of Matt. So what have you prepared for for Luke in his absence as a positive story for the past four weeks? 
So um, we know that uh, in Luke's role as publisher and the work he's been doing with our events, that kind of climate justice is a real part of what we at Edie are trying to kind of incorporate a bit more of. Um, and um, there was a story um, that was kind of well covered in the New York Times uh, recently about a group of um, uh, women who are over 64 years old um, from Switzerland who have filed a lawsuit against the... Um, against the nation, uh, saying it's kind of violated their rights by failing to cover missions. But, I mean, hearing about court cases is nothing new if you're a UK citizen around climate. What's new about this is this is going to the uh, European Court of Human Rights, which is the first time this has Whoa, kind of, okay. yeah, gone up to that level. Um, so this group, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the 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 group name because I, I can't, um, but it's a, it's a kind of a, a Swiss group of around 2,400 women aged 64 and over um, have basically said that these kind of heat waves are, are kind of disrupting their quality of life, it's difficult to go outside, um, and that they are, are finding this, as, uh, so they're filing this uh, lawsuit basically, and I think what's great about this is we hear so much about the younger generations coming through and how they really care, and you think of like climate activism, you mm -hmm. do tend to think of the Teenagers, yeah. yeah. Um, but actually, you know, this is proof that um, this does kind of impact everyone right now uh, and that some portions of the older generation do care. So success story number yeah. one. I mean, it's kind of a success story built off the back of something quite um, basically historic in action, but that's where most of our success stories come from is a response to a bad story. I know, story. I know. I did see that at the big one in London earlier this year. There were a lot of there was a grandfather putting paint on Tufton Street saying they were gambling with his granddaughter's future. Mm -hmm. um, lots of retired doctors, nurses, architects. So, yeah, great to hear about that. So that one's technically from Luke. Have yeah. you bought anything for yourself? I have. I am going to take us to our favourite National Space Research Institute, which is the one in Brazil. Um, we cover the Amazon rainforest like a fair bit. Uh, and we have covered data, satellite data, from that Space Research Institute in that country quite a bit, usually to show how deforestation um, has picked up. Mm -hmm. Obviously, though, um, Brazil is under new presidency um, in the form of Lula, and who made some really big pledges late last year around kind of curbing mm -hmm. deforestation. Uh, and we've kind of had the latest analysis come in that shows that um, actually the rates of deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon have plunged by a kind of two-thirds is a 66 decline relative to July a year ago, which mm -hmm. was um, when Bolsonaro was still um, the president as well. So it's still happening at a pace that's not really compatible with what we need. But that huge drop, a two-third drop in just uh, a little over a year, is a promising sign. You know, the, the Amazon's kind of called the, is it the lungs of the earth, isn't yeah. it? And the fact that we're slowly starting to restore them is, um, I think, a really good... Um, tone to be set in as we kind of go into the latter part of the year which are these kind of big negotiations with with the various cops so mm -hmm. I think that's a good story. I agree um, and I've also got some stories with some percentages you came with 66 I'm coming with 25. Germany has reported a 25% increase in train users after launching its 49 euro a month unlimited ticket so you pay this once and then for four weeks you can use as many trains within Germany um, as you want. Um, it was launched as we're coming out of lockdowns and out of the pandemic. Some people are still wary about using public transport and might be falling back on their cars. Um, but this has got almost a million new users onto German trains, many of whom would probably have taken a petrol or diesel car before. So I thought that was a nice success story. It is, yeah, it is. Oh, it feels 
Nice to start off talking about positive things in the in the office. It does, um, but what's that on the horizon? <laughs> is it a cloud or is it a black piece of fabric being draped over the Prime Minister's house? I don't know if you've been following what's been going on over the past week or so while you've been away, Matt, in terms of Rishi Sunak and his green policy turmoil. Yeah, I um, I have. I think turmoil is the, the right uh, word for it, isn't it? It's just kind of... Um, flies in the face of everything that um, they've pledged under net zero and the updated net zero growth plan as they call it and even the kind of I suppose conservative manifesto about from 2019 never kind of vowed um, for for this and just seems to fly in the face of all the scientific warnings as well which I'm sure you'll kind of explain exactly what it is. Yeah so we've already gone through stories of the month but something else that Luke likes to do when he's here is to have me under a timer explain something to you guys so I'm going to be explaining Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's climate turmoil in two minutes or less. Without Luke we don't have an extra phone to play the high pressure music off of so I'm just going to have to put a stopwatch on Matt if you want to improvise a backing track then um feel free <laughs> uh i probably won't know um i don't want to i don't want to steal the spot probably so. completely um completely distract me <laughs> to be honest um but for those of you like matt that haven't been here in two minutes i'm going to fill you in on what on earth has been going on so essentially a few weeks ago there was a by-election in uxbridge england place that most people globally have never heard of but it was former prime minister boris johnson's constituency and after losing a lot of council elections and other by-elections earlier in the year, the Conservative Party was bracing for a potential loss here. Instead, they did win. Um, the majority was reduced from when Boris Johnson was in to less than 500 people, but nonetheless they won. Um, his successor credits his success to the Conservative Party's opposition to expanding the ultra-low emission zone um, to all of Greater London. So this is a local policy mainly designed to tackle air pollution, um, but it's being conflated with national policies to tackle all climate-related pollution, unfortunately. Um, so as soon as that came in, a lot of MPs on the right of the Tory party said people can't afford electric cars, push back all your key EV-related policies. It's still to be seen whether he, do he is doing that. Nonetheless, even though MPs are on recess, Sunak did announce a big new oil and gas licensing round to take place this autumn. Michael Gove delayed some standards on energy efficiency for private rented properties. Um, and there's loads of stuff going on about low traffic neighbourhoods as well. Um, regarding the oil and gas licensing round, Chris Skidmore MP, author of the Net Zero Review, have said that it was unfair that that was announced while Parliament was on recess and MPs weren't informed or couldn't question it. Um, every climate scientist, every green group is incredibly teed off at this. The Climate Change Committee said that essentially we should caution against all expansion and only allow it in set cases. So they're really teed off again. But again, they're on a sort of summer recess as well while they search for a new chair. So it's all this feeling of a lack of direction and we're not really sure when it will get resolved until everybody's back off summer, um, summer holidays. It's been like a feeling of the carpet being pulled under the feet really, and I'm on 1 minute 59, oh, yeah. independently adjudicated by Matt. Even saved a second there. Yeah, <laughs> I, was watching the, I was watching the time, I could, uh, I could tell that was, yeah. uh, that was in time. So I'm going to keep my rage and disappointment to two minutes so as not to bring the whole timeline down, but I'm sure you've been watching that from a distance. And Yeah, it's, um, I, mean, I mean, you've described it succinctly there with everything that's, that's um, gone on, and I think... Our self-proclaimed leadership in the climate sphere is, is well and truly kind of tarnished and in tatters from that. Um, and it'd be interesting to see kind of 
what reception we get at COP28 when we, we yeah. head there from kind of steering discussions in Glasgow. Um, That's whether we get a reception. Of course, Sunak hasn't announced that he's yeah. definitely going now. Yeah, yes. well, whoever the the, uh, the UK envoy is uh, or group of envoys is for that, it'd be good yeah, just to see how well they're perceived by other nations. Um, I mean, we're... We've kind of gone back to the the dirty man of Europe with our whole yeah, baby. Yeah, I, I remember in Glasgow when um, no one would shake the Australian Prime Minister's hand. I have a sneaky suspicion it might be the same. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but you know that kind of pressure sometimes can can lead to, to uh, U-turns, and it wouldn't be the first time Sunak or the or the government's U-turned on on something that's proved wildly unpopular. So, he's hoping. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Um, do keep an eye on ED. We'll be following all the latest news from Westminster, which does seem to keep flowing like a storm overflow of sewage. Very nice. Uh, <laughs> um, but I'm not going to keep the tone down for this whole time because we do have three great guest speaker segments to deliver up for this edition of Sustainability Uncovered. Um, you might have noticed that we talked about summertime earlier, but I'm going full out for a summer themed episode with a lot of alliteration so for this first half of the podcast we're going on summer holidays and sustainable shopping centres the things we all like to do when we get some time um, some time off so we'll be speaking to two great businesses in those fields in the first half and then coming back for science-based targets in the second um, half so a lot of alliteration all the S's. Yeah, I had no guidance for this episode, so I've just sort of pulled this out a bit, but I think it works well. Um, and where better to start in August than with um, summer holidays? So we've all seen the headlines about demand for sustainable summer holidays going up. We've also seen trends with different kinds of holidays taking off, uh, pun intended, um, post-COVID. Um, but also that that's being impacted by extreme weather in Europe. So to help me make sense of what's actually going on and unpick these trends in a bit more detail, I made a call to Booking.com's Head of Sustainability, Danielle De Silva, who's an expert on picking all those numbers and trends. Um, so without further ado, let's get into that discussion with Danielle in full. Yes, so for this part of the podcast, it is my pleasure to be speaking to um, Danielle from the Booking.com sustainability team, because what would a summer special of the podcast be without mention of summer holidays? So thank you so much for your time, Danielle. How are you? Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for hopping on. And as I say, really adding to this summer edition. Um, I'm sure we have people um, listening who have used Booking.com before but for those who haven't or maybe aren't aware could we have an introduction um, in a nutshell and then also how long have you been head of sustainability there? Yeah absolutely so at booking.com our mission is to make it easier for everyone to experience the world so no matter who you are or where you want to go we help make that happen. Um, at booking.com we take the friction out of travel so through our platform we connect millions of travelers with memorable experiences, a range of transportation options and also obviously incredible places to stay, homes, hotels and much more. I'm the head of sustainability. I've been with the company now for over five years and in this role for a year and a half or so. And sustainability is really a core component of that mission to make it easier for everyone to experience the world. As a, a leader in travel, we have an important responsibility to make more sustainable choices easier for accommodation providers and travelers. So my responsibilities include leading the integration of sustainability into the company culture and into our products, into our travel offerings. 
as well as leading the development and execution of our holistic sustainability strategy, our net zero target, and how we really connect travelers to those more sustainable experiences that they want. We can come on to what travellers want in terms of sustainable holidays in a, in a moment, Danielle, but I really wanted to touch on strategising and working with other businesses because I know travel agencies are the sort of company that works with lots and lots of other businesses, so many hotels and providers of transport like car rentals. So what can you guys do to influence the rest of the um, industry to also go further and faster on the environmental piece? Yeah, absolutely. So you touch on environmental sustainability. I think it's, first of all, nice to acknowledge that the travel industry, from a sustainability perspective, is really um, interdimensional. So environmental sustainability is obviously hugely important for travel. We talk about carbon emissions a lot, but it also has a huge dependency on the other dimensions of sustainability, like social and economic sustainability. And so we really have to make sure that those three are in balance. And when you talk about the partners that we work with or the the players in the industry and how we can influence them, I think it's first nice to recognize that many of those um, entrepreneurs, many of the people in the industry already want to take action on sustainability. So our accommodation partners, for instance, are very keen to improve their sustainability efforts and work on it. So thankfully, influencing them doesn't mean that we have to get them to want to do this. It's a matter of making sure that they um, can seize that opportunity. So we very much see that travel can and should be a force for good, bringing that positive social, economic, environmental impact to the destinations we visit. And we work with already millions of entrepreneurs of all sizes that use our platform to promote and sell their services. And those include obviously large hotel chains all the way to, you know, small um, home rentals or even attractions like, uh, you know, maybe a small scuba diving school or something like that. And At the end of 2021, we released our Travel Sustainable Badge, which is a credible, globally inclusive sustainability measure that's accessible for all kinds of properties, from apartments to B&Bs, holiday homes, hotels. And what that does is it's a first of its kind industry initiative to build on the many eco-certifications that we see already in place to provide clear, transparent information to consumers in a consistent and easy to understand way to identify a wider range of sustainable stays in a really um, transparent way. Because as you mentioned, and as I mentioned earlier, our travelers really want to travel more sustainably. Almost three quarters are telling us that they want to see more sustainable choices provided to them. So the idea of this badge is that it's an intermediate solution between all or nothing, because certifications are very um, demanding on our accommodation partners. They're the ideal sustainability criteria that they can meet. But what we see in the industry today is that maybe is a step too far for some of our partners. So how can we make sure that we build a step-by-step process for them to engage in sustainability and showcase this back to consumers in a way that provides that transparent information, but it also gives them some recognition in that journey as well. So it's really creating about that, that bridge, that pathway. And so as part of our long term approach with the badge, we want to recognize properties that are making impactful efforts, even when they're early stage and show those to our travelers in in what we now have as levels. So you can see levels one, two, three and then certified properties. Um, And so what this does is it allows us to bring that that incentive and that motivation to our partners to actually engage in it sooner than they might have otherwise done it. 
What we also see is that many of our travelers are confirming that they actually want to travel more sustainably. This is super important to them. 80% of our travelers are saying that this is a factor in their decision making in uh, in travel. And two thirds are saying that they would feel better about staying in an accommodation if they knew it had a sustainable certification or label. So this is immediately serving the need for them to actually find these properties that they otherwise can't find. The thing that I'm really proud of in the last couple of years with this Travel Sustainable Program is we now have over 550,000 recognized properties with the program. So more than ever before, travelers can find a more sustainable offering and they can see where it is on their sustainability journey. And even more than that, we've had almost a million and a half properties engage with us telling us what they've done or what they're not doing on sustainability. So we have a really good understanding of what are the barriers that are currently in the accommodation sector on sustainability. We can then overlay, if we look at a property, what are the activities that they're doing? What are they not doing? And what are the systemic blockers that they're facing to actually make sure that they can progress in sustainability? So it's a wealth of information that we've never had before. That's great. I'm sure that, yeah, we will say that companies are, they know what they need to do and they're not quite sure how, especially with the data. Um, And as you mentioned, if they're in a tough spot, like if they're in a market that doesn't really do renewable electricity, for example. Um, But I also wanted to touch on how that works with with customers. Um, We've all seen articles in lifestyle magazines about people saying the demand for sustainable holidays is increasing. As you say, most people do consider this as a factor um, when they're booking. But I wanted to get your feeling on how that demand changed during COVID and now that we're sort of out of the lockdown, where I'm calling from at least? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's an important question because of course, well, you're talking about summer holidays, so obviously people are wanting to travel currently. Sustainability is top of mind, but cost and cost of living is also really top of mind. So in general, we see demand is increasing according to our research two-thirds of travelers are planning to go on a summer holiday and our summer search data shows an increase compared to 2022 across all regions. So that's wonderful. Um, But every year we do our sustainable travel research where we look at travelers' intent and attitudes towards sustainable travel. And what we definitely saw this year was that travelers are increasingly facing the dilemma of should they travel more sustainably or should they travel with costs in mind? And I don't necessarily think that those two have to go against each other, but we have to acknowledge that travelers see those that being a dilemma. It's obviously important to them. So 74% of our travelers believe that they need to act now to make more sustainable ch- choices to save the planet for future generations, and that sustainability is a key driver for their travel choices. But about 50% of travelers feel that sustainable choices are too expensive. So they're really facing that. That's hard for them. We also see that uh, travelers, while they feel that sustainable options are maybe too expensive, uh, around 50% also tell us that they'd be willing to spend more for a sustainable option. So there's definitely a sense among travelers that this is an important driver for them. They feel the dilemma and we're trying to figure out how the cost of living crisis will continue to impact their spending plans and their intent towards sustainable travel. When it comes to how we can actually tap into that intent towards sustainable travel with these travelers who are thinking of cost, about, again, about 50% of our travelers say that they are looking for discounts or economic incentives to actually choose those more sustainable options. They're thinking of reward points or 
extra perks, things like this that they could do to actually make those choices accessible and something that they would be willing to spend on. That makes complete sense. And we're seeing that in other product categories um, as well, not just holidays. It's definitely other industries where people might think that the sustainable choice is the more expensive one. So I wanted to get your view on how we overcome that. Is there a way to maybe filter by affordable and sustainable? And I know you talked about the badge, but is it a case of flagging this information um, and nudging people? Or do you think it maybe needs to to go towards choice editing and just really narrowing it down even further? Like what's the future of promoting more sustainable options to customers? Yeah, it's a really great, great question. I think a lot of it comes down to perception. So it's not just about cost, but travelers are full of perception about what, what a sustainable travel offering might mean. They think that maybe it's too luxurious or sometimes they feel like it's not luxurious enough or they think that they just don't exist in the destination that they want to go to. And all of that is is fueled by perception, not necessarily by data. So I think, you know, what we're trying to do is highlight the properties and the sustainable practices that they have. So even a traveler not looking necessarily specifically for a sustainable property, a more sustainable product offering, they can see what that property is doing. So it becomes a value add to their accommodation booking that's fitting their other parameters like cost and perhaps it's you know family oriented or perhaps it's in the destination that they're looking for but they can see on top of that it's also taking a number of actions on sustainability so i think it's it's ultimately about positioning sustainability as something that can enhance their stay and not something that they have to choose between sustainability and something else because that's really not the the case that we have um, i think ultimately that can be helpful for travelers in educating them not only on what choices they can make in a more sustainable way, but what sustainable travel really means. They're quick to think that sustainable travel is only about carbon or perhaps it's only about hanging up a towel and accommodation, but there are a lot of other activities that go into sustainable travel and a sustainable accommodation that we can also play a role in educating them. So when they go on a property page and they see 30 different practices that that property is doing towards sustainability, that's also an educational moment for them to engage and think, oh, I never realized that this goes into the sustainability of my of my stay and my visit. So that can be a way that we can start to break down those perceptions. That makes complete sense. And like I said about costs, more people are looking for more in-depth information on um, sustainability as well. I don't think we'll reuse your towel is enough for most people to choose a hotel if they're looking for um, for those kind of things anymore. Um, so thank you very much for all of your insights into yeah the sustainable holidays market at the moment, Danielle. We're just about out of time, but I want to say thank you. Thank you so much for um, for popping on. Great. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yes, a big thank you to Danielle once again for being our first guest speaker um, on this episode. Um, so we've we've covered sustainable holidays, and I was thinking about what else you would do on on um, in your free time on summer. So short of calling, for example, my fiance's dad on the barbecue, um, or maybe going to the garden centre, I thought shopping, shopping, something we all do in our time off. Um, sadly, I saw something trending on LinkedIn the other week that said summer made me buy it, which made me want to slam my laptop and say, no, it didn't. Um, that's definitely not the circular economy. <laughs> Um, but I didn't want to be so cynical because we all know that in the summer shopping centres, if done well, can become massive community hubs, places to meet up, 
um, learn new things, socialise with each other and can also be a force for good, which is why Westfield hosted its first festival of sustainable business earlier this year. Um, so to recap on that and to look at how we can go beyond these one-offs in summer and create a sustainable community year-round, I had the privilege of speaking to Westfield UK's Head of CSR, Alison Hodgkinson. Um, so let's get cracking with that discussion with Alison in full. Yes, so as you have probably seen, this is a very alliteration heavy episode of the podcast. We've got summer holidays, sunshine, science based targets, um, and I think I'd be remiss not to include shopping in that as well. So I'm happy to have as our next guest, Westfield UK's head of CSR, um, Alison Hopkinson. So thank you very much, Alison, for, for your time today. Hi, I'm happy to be here. No, thanks for having me. We were meant to be actually in Westfield today, but train strikes had other ideas. But maybe that's good to be out of the noise of probably thousands of, of shoppers now that it's summer holidays. For, yeah, for it's certainly a busy, busy day today. So happy for the peace and quiet. <laughs> Great. Well, happy to, to have you for a few moments and talk essentially about what um, what retail businesses um, like Westfield can do in terms of community impact and being a force for good, especially at this busy time um, of year. But before we get into what's going on um, at the moment, I did want to recap on something really exciting that happened a few weeks ago. Um, so I'm told that earlier this year, Westfield hosted its first Westfield Good Festival um, in London. So for, for the listeners' benefit, it'd be great to hear a little bit more about what that event was and why launching that this year was so important yeah happy to so so the the westfield good festival um was a consumer facing open to all sustainability themed event um, it took place across all 22 of our westfield shopping centers here in the uk and across uh, europe it's the first time we've done it uh, we did it in april and may it was so successful um that we now plan to to repeat it annually um the, the purpose really of, of the event was to sort of help educate, inspire and support our customers um, as they make their own positive steps on the sustainability journey. I think it's fair to say a lot of our customers want to do something, but not always sure um, what to do and how to do it. Um, and in addition, we also wanted to to showcase some of our local brands that are really active um, in, in the sustainability uh, arena. That makes sense. And I wanted to get your view on what the reaction to that was like. I, I, I had noted down for shoppers, but also how did the businesses um, react to that and pre prepare for that? It was it was hugely successful. I mean, the, the feedback uh, even took me by surprise. I'll, I'll be honest. It was so well received. So many people engaged with the activities that we had on so many questions. Um, and we had a number of different um elements to it um, that people could engage with um, such as we had um, a local swap shop so you could bring an item of clothing that perhaps you don't wear anymore that's in good condition um, and then peruse the rails and swap it free of charge for another item this was by far uh, the most popular event um, and all age groups actually all age groups are really really engaged with that um, so that was popular and we'll definitely do that bigger and better next year I think that the other really popular element uh, was uh, called the, the sort of repair and enhance workshop. And this were local people um, that came with their sewing machines and their, and their knitting needles and everything else and showed people that perhaps had an item of clothing or a bag that had um, maybe a missing zip or a button or had a tear, 
how to make that into a new item just through patching or embellishing, just basically giving it a new lease of life. Again, hugely, hugely popular. And, and food always goes down well, doesn't it? So we, so we had a stand on food uh, with chefs showing you how you can make a meal out of leftovers. So leftover food that you and I might throw away. Maybe it's coming to end of life or we think it's coming to end of life, especially around fresh produce. Um, and some of the meals these guys were making, you know, gourmet level, absolutely fantastic. And people really, really engaged with that. I think in the current, you know, cost of living crisis, how to use leftovers um, is, is, is very sort of front and central to a lot to a lot of our customers. So I think that the other element as I really wanted to showcase what each individual centre does, um, you know, for sustainability. It's not always obvious, I think, to consumers what we do, uh, but we do so much. Um, so it was a really good way of being able to engage with our consumer base and just tell them really what we do as a business and how, how we take it so seriously. Um, I think the, the other key element of it is that we hosted um, a panel discussion and it brought together sustainability, focused businesses, local again, to explore the topic of social value as a key business metric. Um, and that really, for me, was a highlight. Um, and it really looked at how businesses can step up their efforts um, in, in that uh, arena. Uh, so for me, that was a real, real highlight. That all sounds super exciting. I think that probably also sends a really strong message to business as well, you know, that it is profitable to offer customers something that's a bit more hands on that lets them make use of stuff that might otherwise go to to waste. So that's super exciting. Um, you mentioned there the importance as well of showcasing what's going on around each of the centres. Um, and I know it's important for businesses to be seen as doing that, not just for a one off day, um, but year round, really. Um, so it'd be great to hear a little bit more about how you're working with your team to embed considerations about community impact strategically year round. So when there's not a festival on what what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a key um, area of conversation in, in a lot of businesses. But we know that sustainability is important to Westfield customers. In fact, 81 percent of our customers tell us that sustainability is important in their purchasing decisions. You know, that's a huge number. So therefore, we see our role really as educating and, and, and really inspiring consumers about how they take realistic steps to live more sustainably and ultimately limit their, their sort of impact on the planet. And this really was what was at the heart of the Westfield Festival. And um, it also impacts our, our wider strategy um, as a business. You know, sustainability is a really key focus of our business. And we're really committed um, to sustainable development and supporting cities that we operate in, in their environmental transition to, to carbon neutrality, but also to help them in a partnership approach in meeting their environmental objectives. And our, our corporate social responsibility strategy, we call it Better Places 2030. And it really lays the foundation for transforming and, and I guess future proofing our portfolio of buildings, not not just from a building, but also from the inside out. Um, and our strategy revolves around three key pillars. Uh, we call them better spaces, better together and better communities. And it focuses our teams, our retailers, our contractors and all of our guests and visitors on a, on a shared vision around positive social value um, and mindful consumption and how they can play their part. Um, we're making real headway on this and we've pledged 
as a business to harbour carbon footprint by 2030. But we also partner with brands who really do believe in sustainable consumption. And we, we co-create programmes and initiatives with them and our retailers and, and partners to create, I guess, a broader shift in our industry to showcase what we can do and what we all should be doing. And I, I think I would just finish by saying that Continuous improvement in sustainability is absolutely key. Just putting a, um, an action plan together and delivering it is, is just not enough. Uh, consumers demand more, retailers demand more, uh, brand partners demand more. So it's really important to us and we're, we're working really hard to increase our ambitions. Um, and with that in mind, we will have some uh, very exciting updates that we can support, speak more, to, uh, more on later this year as we look to update our sustainability strategy also. Great. We'll have to kick, uh, check back in then probably before the Christmas <laughs> rush, which it feels a bit insane to be talking about in summer, but it will creep up on us. I certainly will. <laughs> um, and with that strategic um, update in mind, I wanted to come back to what you said that essentially just making a commitment isn't enough. It's all about delivery and about constantly checking that the level of ambition is where it should be. So I wanted to get your advice really for other businesses going through the same process, looking to make a really robust ESG strategies, looking to go beyond the one off, looking to really embed that and go for their most meaningful impact year year round. So what have what have you learned in that strategizing process, Alison, that you, you'd share with the listeners? So um, a, f- a fundamental objective from the beginning for us has always been to serve our local community, but, n- but serve it well and, and in a meaningful way. And I think meaningful is, is the key word here. Um, and you know, we do that by empowering each of our Westfield Shopping Centre teams to, to develop and deliver what we call a community resilience action plan. And the aim there is to make the community more resilient, um, which serves to what I like to call mutual flourishing. So we, we flourish well, as do, do, do the community. And the community resilience action plan asks the centres to identify the local community need or opportunity. Um, it asks them to identify local charities or um, non-governmental organisations who are experts in helping with that particular community issue and then partner with them and partner with them in a meaningful way um, so that each centre then delivers initiatives, programmes and gives space or time or funding in support of that local community or issue. But I think I would also say that if you want to make a sustainable difference in the world of social value, then you have to be better at reporting on social value and the impact of what you're doing. Um, you know, is it making a difference that allows you to make good decisions? If you can't measure it, um, then you don't know whether it's working. Can it be improved? Should you change direction? And we've worked really hard on this and I've partnered with um, an organisation called the Social Value Portal. Um, there are many, many out there, but we, we partnered with them and they've helped us write a social value report for each of our centres, um, you know, in 2022. And we're super proud of this. We delivered over £22 million worth of social value in the UK alone. Um, and this, this topic was actually a key focus for a recent panel we hosted and it brought together, as I said, sustainability businesses together. And we really try to delve into how businesses can deliver more social value and have the the impact that you want. And some key things came up, um, you know, and I, I think people ask me all the time for sort of top tips <laughs> um, on doing social value. And and ultimately, the, the outcome of this um, working group had this really, which was, you know, introduce social value as a performance management metric. 
you know, treat it as importantly as you would a financial performance metric. Have a sustainable or social value champion within your business or your organisation. You know, partner with a social value expert and they will help you on that journey. You know, commit to meaningful contributions and, and, you know, transparent social value reporting. That's really, really important. And also remember, you don't have to do all of this yourself. Um, Extracting social value from a supply chain is a huge opportunity. And in my experience, supply chain partners really want to contribute and will partner with you on your social value journey. So, you know, join forces and become a collective good. Um, It's not as hard as it sounds. Well, I'd say sorry to be another person asking for social value top tips, but it's good to hear that this is possible um, and that you can have that, that support, as you mentioned, from the supply chain, from local partners who already know exactly what's going on in a specific place and from other partners too. So, Alison, I know we're nearly out of time for this section. So thank you so much for popping on our summer edition of Sustainability Uncovered. Thanks. It was really nice to talk to you. So there you have it, two consecutive interviews with two great people representing businesses that are really having to supercharge their sustainability efforts this summer. I'm aware that Matt and I have sort of sped through that and covered a lot of ground in this first half of Sustainability Uncovered episode 10. If you can believe it, we're on 10 already. We're on double figures this time. Um, So we're just going to have a very quick break to refresh and rejuvenate. Um, And then we'll be back with our third and final guest speaker from the Science-Based Targets Initiative. See you in a moment. You are listening to Sustainability Uncovered, brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank. The ED team are delighted to have partnered with Lloyds Bank for this podcast series as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Right, so welcome back from the break. Matt, are you ready for round two? Yes, we're talking S's in the summer holidays, right? We are. We're not talking boxing match. We're, we're still talking S's and the summer holidays. So after looking at some case studies and insights from two businesses in part one, specifically businesses that you may well be using during your summer break, um, we've got a different S. We're turning our attention to an organisation that's galvanised thousands of large businesses globally in increasing their climate ambition. Um, Our next guest is Maria Outers, who is the Chief Impact Officer at the Science-Based Targets Initiative, the SBTI. Um, And this idea came to me because we had the SBTI at our biggest event of the year, ED23, um, and the audience put so many more questions to the SBTI than we had time to take. Um, So when I got this email from Maria, I thought it would be great to put some of those additional burning questions to her. I don't know if you sat in on that session Matt, but it was very lively. Yeah, I saw, I saw bits of it, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that everyone always has loads of questions with. It's massively popular, more than 3,000 businesses now. Um, I do want to have a quick caveat for this one, which is that late last week, the SBTI updated its dashboard to name and shame businesses that didn't set verified targets two years after pledging to do so. The coverage is on ED, but unfortunately, Maria and I spoke before that coverage, but this is still really timely. 
Um, hopefully we can catch up about that later in the year. Um, so we'll have to cover that later. But for now, here is that chat with Maria in full. Hopefully it will answer some of your SBTI FAQs. Yes, so for this third and final part of our somewhat of a summer smorgasbord board that I've prepared for you for this podcast episode, um, I'm delighted to have Maria Outers on from the Science-Based Targets Initiative to run us through all your FAQs about science-based targets. So Maria, thank you so much for your time. It's great. Thank you so much, Sarah, for the opportunity to have SPTI online today. No, thank you for coming on. Um, SPTI, always super popular um, when we have you guys on podcasts and at events and at events, it's normally, you know, your energy managers, your carbon managers, your chief sustainability officers, people doing the number crunching for their own science based targets. But for those who are listening who aren't super aware of science based targets or of the initiative, could we have a super potted introduction just to get started? Of course, I'd love to. So for the everyone else, the SBTI small acronym, which stands for Science-Based Target Initiative, is still a very recent initiative because it was only being formally formalized in uh, during the Paris Agreement back in 2015. And we were born at the moment where everyone was realizing that we were at the critical juncture when it comes to climate change and that businesses have a unique responsibility and the power to make an impact in cutting carbon emissions. So SBTI comes as a non-for-profit organization and we bring together climate experts from all around the place with lots of expertise to define and provide the intelligence and the guardrails for companies to set targets in line with the latest climate science. So meaning to stay within the 1.5 degree warming. So we issue standards and we validate the targets that company uh, have set for themselves. So this is in a nutshell about what SBDI has been where why we were created and where we are today and and eight years later down the road very impressive uh, to see that yes some people do know us and that today more than 3,000 businesses including nearly a quarter of fortune 500 companies um, had already by the end of last year uh, already committed uh, with through SBTI and we have more than 300 companies now with our highest level of ambition which is the net zero standard. Got it. And yeah, massive time of growth for target setting. It feels like every time I go on the dashboard, there's more companies. So I wanted to get your view on the awareness of what the SBTI is, not only in the corporate space, um, but around the corporate space. So we often hear about investor engagement um, with companies on climate intensifying. They're asking companies whether they have SBTs. Big companies are asking their suppliers. Um, and all of this means that the public are finding out through news from these sources as well. So I wanted to get your view on whether awareness is really taking off as much as it looks like from where, where I'm sitting. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah, for, for yes, just saying this, which is true for ourselves. We're very not surprised, I would say, not even pleased, because I think there is much more to be done. But to see these numbers that have almost doubled year on year of companies which are committed, I think it's it's really nice. But of course, we won't stop here and uh, we want to be uh, almost something like business as usual for any company to be completely aware and being adopting those kind of rigorous, ambitious and credible uh, target setting. So today I would say, but again, this is maybe only a, one opinion, but that fr from the investors, we see a lot 
today of already understanding and pick up and credibility for SBTs. And as you rightly pointed out, a lot of them asking the companies to be disclosing through a CDP platform and to be uh, rated and evaluated by SBTI. Um, I think from the corporation side, there's still a lot to be done, but we're happy to report that now science-based targets are being set across every continent and almost any country today uh, has uh, already companies engaged. So it means that there is uh, a general movement that is being done. We still can do a lot to educate through uh, industry forums and conferences uh, where we can be bringing somehow uh, the, the ex expertise and somehow try to demystify what does it mean uh, for a company because yes they can be a little bit um, at the very beginning puzzled or unclear about what it takes to do your uh, carbon baselining uh, then to understand what is the right level of ambition they should have and this is the whole role that SBTI is bringing is a little bit of a education into the market, but then I would say something that is a very nice indirect effect, which is a little bit the peer pressure. It's other companies that are showing that they can set the bar, that they can commit themselves. And so this is what is then triggering across companies. And there is a kind of healthy competition to then understand, OK, am I missing something? Have I understood exactly what does it mean and what are the benefits of setting science-based targets? And so we see this indirect effect, which is also very, very important. And of course, then you have, depending on where you sit in the world, you'll see also the opportunity for more and more uh, reflections at the policy level uh, for, for making almost science-based targets uh, almost uh, uh, not a voluntary initiative anymore, but a compulsory or something regulated by legislation. So I think from the very different angles, you have massive information that is being uh, shared. And I think the level of awareness now is really uh, growing. But again, uh, we are also very much aware that we need to continue to raise the bar, educate, especially as science evolved and we started with a near-term target. Now we're moving to the net zero target, which is very much again aligned with the Paris Agreement. It's not enough to think about 2030, but it's really to make yourself into a radical transformation sometimes of your business plan. And so we need to continue educate all the time, even the early adopters of what is new, what is required now. And so we can be going into some of the specifics, but um, I would say, half full and half empty, lots has been done, but still a lot to be done. So you talked about peer pressure from other companies and you talked about pressure in terms of regulation and disclosures. Um, I also wanted to talk about pressure in terms of um, customers and investors calling businesses out for greenwashing, which is something we've seen so much of this year um, and in recent years, and everyone predicts it's going to only continue. Um, so I wanted to get your view on what the role of having science-based targets it is in companies overcoming greenwashing, essentially, because as you mentioned, they are um, aligned with science and it does make you part of this large um, community. So what, what has the initiative been observing in terms of um, supporting members with, with greenwashing debates this year? Yeah, uh, it's a very important topic. And to be honest, again, it can depend on where you are in, in the world. But I would say that uh, with SBTI standard, what we're really asking for companies, which I think should 
prevent them from doing any greenwashing is to have a good level of ambition. And when I say good, I mean really aligned with what science requires. So not a company just saying, yeah, I'm going to be carbon neutral or something like this, which doesn't mean anything. So being very clearly about what does it take to be 1.5 degree aligned, I think it's the first level of making sure that you're not just telling something that uh, nobody can understand, relate to, or anything. Then we ask for a lot of data for companies to disclose about what are the steps, what are the drivers that will take them to cover all scope three, uh, and so scope one, two, and three. We're asking them not to use offsets in their own trajectory uh, and in their near-term or long-term targets, no offsets at SPTI are being accepted. And, and there is really kind of the clear guardrails of what they should be doing. And we're asking any company that uh, commits uh, to SPTI to publish regularly their progress on their targets. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's definitely some of the guardrails that would help companies to be very, feel very uh, accountable for what they've been pushing. And if I may share a personal anecdote, a year ago, I was chief sustainability officer of uh, at Sodexo, and, and Sodexo committed to SBTI, and it allowed us to be very clear about what is it exactly that the drivers um, that we will pull out to make sure that we can reach our target. And SBTI is scrutinizing all this data. And so again, it was for me something that was very useful to make sure that we were robust and being helped by someone um, that was asking for a vast quantity of data to check the data, uh, which is really important. And so it made us feel much more comfortable and confident that what we were pulling together was credible, comprehensive, um, and, and transparent, and this is what we're looking for. And I would add one last thing, Sarah, which I think was important as a measure that SBTI took earlier this year in January, so not so long ago. Um, we decided to enforce a commitment policy, that is to say, when companies uh, commit to SBTI, they have two years to submit their full detail of targets and then to be approved. And until recently, we were not fully uh, following on this, but since January this year, any company that fails to then set their targets and submit all the data that is required to have their targets validated is now being taken and being clearly spelled out as removed in our table, which is very public on our website. And so I think those are all the efforts that we're trying to bring to make sure that we help the companies themselves to be credible because it would be lose-lose for anyone. So we're really looking for very credible clear, robust, and ambitious climate action. And I think this is where everyone should be aiming at. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I wanted to get a view on, as you say, that um, you need to keep improving and keep looking at um, ways to, you know, move the needle, push ambition and action higher um, as time goes on. And as you mentioned, there have been some changes this year already so do are you able to tell us anything about anything that's coming up in the near future um in in terms of um what the initiative is asking from from companies or perhaps what it's doing to prepare for things like cop 28 later this year 
you're right. Uh, the science and unfortunately any new IPCC report is only telling us that we need to speed up and that we need more uh, much more action uh, if we want, again, to, to respect the boundaries and the limits of the Paris Agreement. So typically, one very important step that SBTI has delivered on was last year in November, when we released our flag guidance for everything that touches to forest, land and agriculture. And it is a new layer for corporations to detail in their uh, scope three all the impacts that they have on land usage and land conversion and take a deforestation free commitment. So we're raising the bar and we're very conscious of that. And so we're having a little bit of pressure saying, aren't you pushing the bar too high? But on the other side, we know that this is what is required. And so typically this is where we're producing new materials to help companies in, uh, in, in being more uh, explicit and more probably ambitious in what they're doing. We're also uh, bringing uh, new types of materials and those last six months have been uh, kind of very, very interesting uh, to see everything that SPTI has been publishing. Um, in terms of new guidance, either we develop new guidance for sector specific and, and we did end of last year things for cement companies, for maritime companies. Now we're just uh, finalizing our work on buildings, which is also a very important sector that deserve to have a specific sector guidance for helping companies to better assess carbon footprint and better plan for what is the carbon reductions needed. Um, we've also worked on something super important, which is the financial institutions. We haven't spoken yet about that, but it's all the ones who finance the real world economy or that ensure uh, the real world economy. And uh, SBTI so far only had it a kind of a near term guidance for financial institutions. And right now, through the summer, we're having a consultation on three very important pieces of, uh, of uh, information for uh, making sure that in the future, we have a standard for financial institutions net zero. This is going to be the first ever standard for financial institutions that we revisit our near-term finance uh, sector guidance and that we also issued a fossil fuel financing position paper. Very sensitive, very important, and this is going through consultation, so no final phase yet, but this is what is being right now being under preparation within SPTI. And maybe I'll mention one thing that I think is also, and it's got to be very topical as we move to COP, it's what companies can be and should be doing beyond their own value chain, beyond their own business. And so within their business, it's our um, net zero or near term guidance that uh, defines what good looks like for their scope one, scope two and scope three reduction. But we've also uh, been willing to formalize something to recognize and acknowledge that companies have a duty and a possibility to work beyond their value chain uh, on, um, on a few actions that can have a very positive impact on nature. And so this is what we call the Beyond Value Chain Mitigation. Here as well, you can consult on our website a document that was put for consultation. It touches on carbon credits and offsets, which again, don't count on your own carbon or decarbonization journey, but are, are something that can be very good to be done on top of 
on the side of to restore um, vital carbon sinks like a tropical rainforest or peatland. And so very important pieces of work that SBTI has been providing uh, recently or that we're just working right now. So this is not all going to be ready by COP, but definitely the consultations will be done. And so it helps us in then drafting for the final recommendations. And, and maybe, Sarah, if I go back to one of your questions, which was about um, alignment and preparation for COP, I would love to reshare with you and with everyone that um, for us, it was super important to see last year at COP27 when the UN uh, pulled together a group of experts, uh, so-called the HLEG, this little acronym for the high-level expert group on, uh, on net zero. And, uh, and it was leading a piece of work to make sure that we bring more credibility. And again, to your point of greenwashing, to make sure that, uh, that we talk the same language and that we have more and more conversions of the non-state entities in terms of what they're doing around pledges and ambitions and, and, and so on. And so it was a great piece of work led by, by Catherine McKenna, uh, which we, we met recently in Paris in June. Um, amazing uh, work that was done that we really welcome to see that everyone is trying to make sure that we speak the same language. We don't create confusion and noise for companies, which I think it's not a good thing to do. But so, but that we also don't allow the bar to be, uh, how do you say, taken down. And it has to be put at, at the right level in terms of credibility, in terms of transparency, in terms of level of ambition. And so SBTI has been uh, working against a lot of those recommendations, which I think are for us very clear and very good for everyone to understand that we need to cover scope one, two, and three, that we shouldn't be doing offsets or that nobody should be looking for offsets on their decarbonization journey, that you need to have very short-term targets because short-term matters a lot. But you also need to think about some of the transformations which are required on the long-term and that you make everything very transparent and I think they use the word radical transparency. We're far from that, but I think it's what is needed in terms of making sure that uh, we help corporations do the right things with the right sequence, even if uh, there is a lot of pressure and a lot of complexity to, uh, I confess, uh, around um, uh, carbon accounting and baselining and, uh, and modeling this, especially when you have very large businesses across the globe, but this is what is required. So nobody says it's simple, but we say it's necessary. Yeah, I find it um, interesting that all the things that you talk about, credibility, transparency, disclosure, is also what the UN is asking for um, from countries and also telling them that they need to get the bar right. Don't pull, try and pull the bar down at this moment in time. So it's good to hear that that's happening in the private sector too. Um, Maria, as you mentioned, this is a super complicated topic and we could probably do a whole hour on it for this podcast. But I know our time on this call is nearly over. So thank you so much for coming on our podcast this edition. Thank you very much, Sarah. And I do hope that uh, this helps a little bit to navigate in something that is so clear, so dear, but sometimes, yes, uh, a little bit difficult. But uh, uh, but I'm I'm staying very optimistic. So thank you for the time and the opportunity today. Yes, thank you once again to Maria, who was our third and final guest, and a big thank you again to all of our guests as well. 
At this point, I'd like to say thank you to Matt for sitting and listening to my voice for so long. Um, (laughs) And thank you to myself for orchestrating this episode, really. Um, But we're not ready to sign off quite yet. Um, Eager listeners might be aware that this is the point in the episode where we usually have the quiz. But normally I have two people to quiz with, making it easy to see a winner and to keep it competitive. Today, I just have Matt. I can't answer the quiz because I'd definitely win if mm-hmm. I prepare the questions. Well, you know, I might get them all right. Might <laughs> a tie. You might run away from me. I might res- misread the screen in front of me yeah. and you might be some sort of genius. I'm yet to see the evidence. So. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm due a miracle, aren't I? We know. Um, so I've had uh, an idea for the structure of points for this one, um, which is I've got a three-question multiple-choice quiz. If you get two or more right, I'll count it as a win. If you get none or one right, I can't take it as a win, I'm afraid, because it's well, not the majority. Either way, I'm finishing first and last, aren't I? So, you oh, are, oh, yes. It depends, it depends, you know, am I a glass half full type of person? Yeah. Which I am. So yes, as an only I child, win. my mother used to tell me often that I was her least favourite and her favourite daughter, <laughs> so it feels like that kind of vibe. Um, so I've got a very quick quiz. Again, it's summer-themed questions. As it's multiple choice, I won't give you a great deal of time to answer them, I'm afraid. So are you ready? Yeah, I'll take as long as I need because we can edit it down and make it look like I answered Oh, really, joy. Great, uh, really great. Quickly. Speedy Gonzalo's here. Um, first one is about holidays. Okay. According to Travel Agent Central, what percentage of travellers are actively looking to book a more sustainable trip? Your options are 60%, 69%, and 78%. Well, immediately I jumped to 70% in my head, so I'll go uh, for B. But I will add the caveat that I think people don't answer surveys honestly. I think they always paint a better picture of themselves than what they actually are. But yeah, yeah B, it's that ambition action gap as well that you'll put, I'm looking for this, see that it's out of your price range or that the trip takes too long and then not do it. Yeah. Um, I will say that you did get that right. It yes. is 69%. So you just need one more to technically win this quiz. So now we, we've decided not to travel. We're staying in the UK. Mm-hmm. We're looking for a beach. But which one is the UK's most popular? Is it Blackpool Beach, Brighton Beach or Kyant's Cove, which is in Cornwall? I, I can only because I've seen Brighton because it's so local. Mm-hmm. Packed, and I don't. Cornwall seems a bit out of the way. Blackpool, maybe. Oh, okay, I'll stick with Brighton. I'm afraid it's actually Blackpool. Uh, people do live in the north. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> and people love to see the lights and to to go and visit all the arcades and things. Yeah, so that it's, makes sense. It's still Blackpool. Um, Kyant's Cove is the most Instagrammed beach, so that was a bit of a trick question. Okay. So your third and final cho- chance to win this quiz um, is about summer of sport. How many tonnes of strawberries were eaten at Wimbledon this year? <laughs> <laughs> I can't even picture what a ton of strawberries would look like. Like, how big would that be? I give you a clue. It's more than ten strawberries. Okay, well, I can, pi- <laughs> I can picture ten strawberries. Uh, we'll just think about how many people will go, and that it's two weeks, mm-hmm. um, and for the first few days, it's eighteen courts. Mm-hmm. If that helps you with any numbers at all, I might just be confusing you additionally. Okay. Um, but your options for how many tons of strawberries were eaten at Wimbledon this year: twenty-nine, thirty-eight, or forty-five. 45. Oh, Matt, you've not got it. It's 38. Oh. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I've got no extra question that we sometimes use as the decider. That's right. I still did the best in this room. Ergo, winner, winner. 
um, non-chicken yeah. plant-based dinner. Sustainable dinner. I should mention on the Wimbledon strawberries, the caveat is that they're all sourced from Britain apparently, minimal air miles on the strawberries, um, and they run a zero food waste to landfill championship, so all uneaten food is either composted or incinerated to generate energy. Oh, there we go. So just so that I don't essentially offend Wimbledon by implying that they're using too many strawberries and not doing it right. Um, that all feels like such a long time ago now, Wimbledon. We're getting into autumn vibes almost. Yeah, I'm ready for autumn. It's been a weird summer, very kind of a, um, climate volatile summer in that sense, hasn't it? Has. it? Um, I'm, I'm more of an autumn person anyway, so ready, ready for that. Yeah, me too, especially as my birthday's in September and then we have, mm. um, you know, the joys of um, all the UN summits to look forward to in our job. Um, before we log off, I thought it was worth just quickly previewing the next episode for those who are already thinking about their Halloween decorations like we are. Um, so our next episode for September will be a special all about the UN Sustainable Development Goals as a sort of prequel to a focus week that we are doing as the ED editorial team. Um, so tune in to hear about all facets of sustainable development. I can't give away too much. Um, but we're going to be looking at everything from clean air to social inclusivity to clean energy and sustainable sport. So a bit of a packed episode um, next time, Matt. So as I mentioned, I'm off on holiday this week. You're already refreshed. Mm -hmm. Soon it will be that sort of back to school, back to climate meetings feeling. Yeah, August is always a little, little bit of a lull for that, those reasons, isn't it? Where it's like people on various different holidays, the, the news does... Certainly corporate news anyway slows a little yeah. bit. So yeah, uh, September will, will definitely start to, to pick up, which is exciting. Yeah, but in the meantime, we hope you've really enjoyed this episode of Sustainability Uncovered, hosted by Edie in partnership with Lloyds Bank. But for now, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.